Well, as you know, it's been homecoming season, or if you didn't know, it has been homecoming season. Has anyone been to a homecoming game at a school or a college? Okay, I've got a, got a couple of home, a, a son in college, and I've got a, another son in high school. And as you may know, one of the common ways of inviting your proposed date to the dance is by means of signs. And so there's a little bit of pressure in the days or weeks leading up to homecoming to come up with a catchy phrase that you will then put on a sign and then uh, present to your hope for date. Usually it's the guy having to do this. And so you've heard maybe different ways, uh, different slogans. For example, out of all the fish in the sea, will you go to Hoko with me? You know, it's got to be something a little bit cheesy, right? Kind of catchy, funny. It's a little bit of pressure. But then you show up at her door with this sign, and you oftentimes will have your friends there filming it and cheering you on. But it's a vulnerable moment. Even if you know, or you kind of know, what the answer will be, that will she accept my proposal, still it's a vulnerable moment because you wonder, will she like the sign? You know, will she in fact say yes? Maybe she's changed her mind, right? Well, that sense of eager anticipation is what many experience in making a marriage proposal. When I proposed to Christy back in 2001, it was an Easter Sunday in the sand dunes of, uh, along the shores of Lake Michigan at Illinois Beach State Park. It was a romantic picnic, and I didn't have a phone to film it. It wasn't a thing back then, and I didn't have a sign. Uh, that might have gotten me in trouble, right, if I'd done something like that. And even though I knew, kind of knew where, where, where things were at, what, what the answer would be, still it was the most vulnerable moment of my life. Here's the, the woman I want to spend the rest of my life with, and I want to ask her to marry me. What will her answer be? Well, this picture here, so it kind of dates me a little bit, but you can see there maybe from, from the expressions on her faces what the answer was. Wow. She feels the same way about me. She said yes. And the portion of Scripture we're getting to today is, in a sense, God's marriage proposal to His people Israel. God had already entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham and his descendants hundreds of years earlier. But there have been many twists and turns along the way, including a 400-year stint in Egypt in slavery, and then a dramatic deliverance from Egypt and, and a departure through the waters of the Red Sea we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and a long trek through the desert to where we're going to end up in this text today. And so now, this is the opportunity for the people of Israel as a whole to respond to God's invitation, to God's proposal. It's sort of a, a deepening and a second stage of that ongoing, that unfolding relationship between God and His people Israel. And so the text picks up there in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai, after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. So Moses' journey has come full circle, and this fulfills God's promise to him back in chapter 3. 
For he said, this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain, Mount Sinai. This is where Moses first met God, where God revealed his name and called him into service. And this is the same place where the Israelites are now ending up, the, the recently liberated Israelites. So this is a confirmation for Moses that God is with them, that he keeps his promises. Yet another indication that God is faithful to his covenant. And the text goes on after that. But the Israelites arrive here seven weeks after that deliverance from Egypt and the Passover. And that's where we get the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost from, 50 days after the Passover. And this is where the Israelites will stay for the better part of a year, all through the book of Exodus, all through the book of Leviticus, and up to Numbers chapter 10. So this is a big deal in the Old Testament, what's just happening here. So it's a pivotal event in the history. It says, as we move on, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession." Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought back their answer to the Lord. Here we have God's proposal, and he begins this pivotal speech to Israel by telling them to remember his actions on their behalf, how he delivered them from slavery in Egypt, how he provided for them miraculously the manna and the quail through the desert for for food to to meet their, their needs, and how he provided water from the rock, how he defended them from the attacking Amalekites, and now how he brought them safely to this place where they could meet with God in a, in a deeper, more intimate, intimate way than ever before. And I love that phrase, I carried you on eagles' wings. God, as it were, came soaring in. He swooped down. He spread out his wings over his young little eaglets, and he allowed them to either jump on his back or, or grab them with his talons, and then he carried them away to safety. This reminds me of the scenes in the the Lord of the Rings, several of those scenes where the great eagles come in, or even the Hobbit. One scene in the Hobbit where they're chased up into the trees, the dwarves and the hobbits, by those attacking fierce wolves and orcs. As they clamber up into the trees, their attackers start to set the trees on fires that weakens them, and they're toppling over, even as the dwarves and the elves, I think the elves too, and, and, and Uh, the hobbits are climbing to the top, when all hope of survival seems lost. These great eagles swoop in, they soar across the sky, and they come and they grab hold of those hobbits 
and dwarves, and they carry them away to safety on eagles' wings. That's a picture of what God has done for His people. And I just want to camp out here for a minute because oftentimes we think, well, in the Old Testament, people had to earn acceptance with God through obeying His commands. I mean, that's the Old Covenant, right? This text shows us that that could not be the case because God's commands aren't even given until the next chapter. The Israelites did not even know how to obey God, to sort of earn His approval. It's not salvation by merit. It's not by performance or doing enough good works. If you do enough, then you're in. No, God carried them. They didn't run. They didn't even walk. They were carried out of Egypt. And so God's reminding them of His sheer acts of grace on their behalf. He saves them. He delivers them before they even know how to obey him. And that's important. And God chose Abraham while he was still an idol worshiper. I mean, it wasn't because he was this amazing person with impeccable character. Maybe he was great, but other texts indicate that he was an idol worshiper. He wasn't following the living God. And according to the Old Testament, that is the worst sin of all, having other gods before God. And so, but God set his love on him and chose him before he had done really anything to deserve it. And that's the case for all of us. Salvation has always been by grace. It's a gift of God. And in the New Testament, from the time of the New Testament, all people are now invited into this covenant with God through the descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Everything points forward to him. And it's through what he did through his merits, through his sacrificial death on the cross, that we are accepted into the presence of a holy God. And so it's based on his merits, not our own. It's, it's a gift of grace received by faith. And I believe that in the Old Testament, everyone was redeemed and saved and delivered, whatever word you want to use, made right with God, accepted by God, on the basis of what Jesus would do one day. So it points forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. And since then, since Jesus entered into history, we look back on what he did. We're saved by what he did do once upon a time. And I think that's really important for us to take to heart. It's the perfect life, the sacrificial death and the victorious resurrection of Jesus that is the pivotal event, that are the pivotal events of history according to Scripture. So God has declared and shown His love to Israel. He's demonstrated it. That's where He begins. And now He invites their response. So God takes the initiative. He reaches out in love. What will the response of the people as a whole be to this covenant that He's established with Abraham and his descendants? So this is God, in essence, asking, will you marry me? And this doesn't happen automatically. It takes a voluntary response of of faith, of personally receiving what he offers, of saying our yes to him. So that does not get established automatically, even though he pursues us and invites us in. It's our saying our yes to him, our our inviting his, 
his, his leadership in our lives. So how do we do that? Well, I believe that there's an inner and an outer dimension to our response right here in the text. The phrase here, obey me fully, captures the inner dimension. But if you look in the Hebrew, that phrase is actually, hear, hear my voice. So God is saying, listen carefully, pay attention. That's an, it's, a, it's a posture receptivity that expresses an attitude of faith. That is how we, we receive this invitation. And this posture of listening and receptivity is something that my cats, our cats at home, Evie and Lexi, are examples to us of. You know, they could be sleeping up on the second floor in the corner of a house somewhere, sound, you know, sound asleep, but as soon as they hear that bag of cat food rustling in the closet, or even just hear the closet doors opening, if they're hungry, they instantly will appear by their food bowls in the kitchen. You know, their, their antennas are up. They're, they're responsive. And that is what this phrase is getting at, of being receptive to God's voice, being, being hungry, being open to what he wants to give us. Another way of putting it is to have your cell data turned on, cellular data turned on, so you can receive God's texts and his phone calls when he has something to say. Well, the outer dimension is captured by the phrase, keep my covenant. It's really about doing what God says. You know, when you love someone, you want to find out what pleases them. What do they like? So what is their love language? So my wife, Christy, her love language is acts of service. So she feels loved when I fix things around the house or when I do the dishes. My love language is, well, I appreciate that, but I also... I think even more have the love language of acts, not acts of service, but uh, physical touch and words of affirmation. So you should tell her, that's, you've got the easy job, right? All you have to do is give me a hug and say something nice, and I'm good. <laughs> but God's love language is to hear and to keep. Or as Rick and Sue Ann said last week, to trust and obey. That is how we respond to God's invitation, not to earn his approval, but to enter into that covenant and to receive the blessings of it. And as we do so, this is how you then realize your calling thirdly. And the three results of saying yes to God's proposal are, you will then be my treasured possession. Of all the people, all the nations of the earth, you will be my treasured possession. So they will enter into and enjoy a close, personal, intimate relationship with the living God as they say their yes to him, become, in effect, his chosen people. That's a relationship in which God's heart towards them is described in many beautiful ways. But in Isaiah 62, it says, As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Can you, can you believe that? That God rejoices over his people. There is treasured possession that he rejoices over. It says in Zephaniah 3.17, he will take great delight in you and his love will rejoice over you with singing. I mean, picture that. God, you know, rejoicing over us with singing, you know, delighting in his people, treasuring them. 
amazing as it seems or unbelievable as it may seem, that becomes a reality for us too in connection to Christ. That's how God feels about us too. You know, when the Father says of His Son, Jesus, you are my Son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. That is how God feels about you and feels about me. I don't know about you, but that's hard for me to take in. It's hard for me to go from here, you know, to have it really lodge into my heart and begin to bring life to my soul. And so in college, I had a loft bed, and I took a sheet of paper of these truths of who I am in Christ, and I taped it to the ceiling right above my head. It was just about a foot between my face and the ceiling. And so I could look at that as I was going to sleep at night or as I was waking up in the morning. I could renew my mind and begin to have that, those truths kind of wash over me, begin to lodge themselves in my heart. And over time, that led to a deeper sense of, of confidence in God and His love, of, of new freedom and joy in my life. But it is a journey that I am still on. And we were just talking about this between services. I believe this is a journey that will continue throughout all eternity, that we will more and more get to just plumb the depths of God's love because it's inexhaustible. We have all the eternity to, to, to receive God's love and, and to have it fill our souls and permeate our lives. And that's what he's inviting us to here. He treasures us. He delights in us. He rejoices over us. And he is pleased with us on account of Christ. And so think of us being like sponges. You know, at first, if a sponge is really hard, you try to get water into it, it kind of bounces off. You know, I don't know exactly how that all works, but after a while, you know, the, the water begins to seep in and it begins to get full and saturated and permeated and begins to spill over, drip over. And that is what God wants for us, to soak in his love so we can then give it away. And that's what transforms our lives. So let's, let's go for it. Let's soak in God's love. Well, the second result of saying yes to God's proposal is that we will be a kingdom of priests, he says. Now, future chapters will unfold that there's a special priesthood that's established with Moses' brother Aaron and his descendants, but this is also intended for the Israelites as a whole. They all get to be priests, get to be mediators who present people to God and represent God to people. Now, this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the, the perfect final sacrifice and ultimate high priest. And through our connection to him, these phrases that are applied to the people of Israel get applied to the followers of the Messiah. As 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So Israel's calling now belongs to all who are in Christ, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. And this captures the whole idea of the priesthood of all believers, which sort of got obscured through layers of church tradition throughout history. And then it was recovered and recaptured during the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s, in part. And this truth means 
that there are no bench warmers in the kingdom. We're all invited to be in the game, to play the game. There's a place for all of us. The team is huge, and there's lots to be done, and we are all invited in. This is not just for the spiritual superheroes. This is for all Christians. But unfortunately, not everybody does get in the game, and so we have a few people wearing themselves out, and the majority's skills and, and, and resources remain untapped. Someone is likened the situation of the church to a soccer game where there are thousands of spectators in desperate need of exercise watching 22 players who are in desperate need of sitting down to rest. So let's get in the game. That makes it so much more joyful and, and, and meaningful and fruitful when all of us discover our gifts, discover our role, and get in the game. There's so much to be said about that, but one way, if you're new, uh, and you're checking out Christ Church, you'd like to discover how you can get more plugged in is to uh, go to Christ Church in five after the service. We'll help you take next steps for that. Or you can type that in the chat online as well. And this is something that's for all of us. Well, thirdly and finally, when we say yes to God's proposal, he says, you will be a holy nation, a nation that displays God's glory, that prepares the way for the coming of the Messiah, and that becomes a channel of blessing to the rest of the world. You know, God blessed Abraham not so it would stay there, but so that Abraham and his descendants could be a blessing to the whole world, ultimately through Jesus. Now, holiness is oftentimes thought of as something negative that limits human flourishing. But if you look at Scripture, holiness is actually the opposite. It's about human flourishing. It's about becoming those people that God has created us to be, to be our healthiest selves. And the rest of the Scriptures will spell out a lot of what, what that is. But Israel's now, the church's calling is to show the way by being an alternative society, by being that holy nation, or as Jesus put it, the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So the calling is to display the beauty and the truth and the goodness of God. And this was huge in my own steps towards giving my life to Christ as a teenager. I saw that the kids at the youth group had something that I didn't, a kind of love for each other, a, a joy and a peace that was attractive, that made me thirsty, so it caused me to hunger for what they had and try to find out what it was. I saw a difference between them and my own life and the lives of my friends at school. And so that was an indication of this, this whole teaching here about being a holy nation that embodies the goodness of God. Now, tragically and obviously, unfortunately, the church has often failed to embody this calling. You think of infamous examples like the Crusades or the Inquisition or, you know, witch trials, abuse in the church, racism in the church, and all of that is tragic and inexcusable, completely at odds with the gospel and the way of Jesus. And it underscores the fact that professing faith is not the same thing as living the faith. 
I mean, hypocrisy is a, is a main reason for people leaving the church, especially among young adults. That's a, that's a reason that's given, the hypocrisy of the church. Now, all of that being said, I'm reminded of what one of my early mentors told me. He said, Mark, if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. That's, that's the truth because we're all recovering sinners. None of us is perfect. We're all on the way. So I think we should have a sign on our back saying, you know, I'm a work in progress. Please be patient with me. You know, God isn't finished with me yet. Kind of like have a student driver signs on the car. Helps explain why, okay, he's not totally getting it right. He's not totally living this out perfectly, right? Well, this is not a club for those who are perfect. It's a family for recovering sinners who, who need one another to shape each other's lives and to be reminded of God's goodness and his truth and his grace and the things that we need to grow. And so we can't expect perfection this side of heaven, but we can expect authentic progress. Even so, that isn't automatic. I mean, it's possible to be a, a lifelong church-going believer without really changing much. What's needed is an active cooperation with God's work of transformation in our lives. As we say around here, we pursue intentional spiritual growth. It doesn't just happen. It's not just automatic. Becoming like Jesus is an adventure worth every effort. So we pursue growth not in order to earn God's favor, but in order to become who we are created and redeemed to be. So it might raise the question, well, how do, you just talked about grace all this time. What, what, how does this fit, fit together with God's grace? I love how Dallas Willard answered that. He said, grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. So we can't earn God's grace. But when we apply efforts to becoming like Jesus, we're more dependent on God's grace. The ones who go for it the most use up the most grace. It's kind of like the marathon runners burn up the most calories, way more calories than the spectators standing there on the sides cheering them on. They're burning up those calories. Well, think of the calories as being God's grace. There's an inexhaustible supply of it. We use up more grace when we really go for it with them and pursue transformation in our lives. So let's train for transformation through practices like showing up here, like scripture, meditation, solitude, and silence, and so on. It's ways for us to place ourselves before God so he can do his work of transformation in our lives. It's a way for us to soak up that grace. Now imagine what can happen when we do. There are substantial personal benefits to this. It leads to greater mental, emotional, even physical health when we practice our faith. And in general, it leads to stronger marriages, less addiction, and greater life satisfaction. There are tons of personal benefits to practicing our faith. But it doesn't stop there. There are all kinds of benefits for others and for society. It's not just good for us. It's good for others. In his book, The Air We Breathe, Glenn Scrivener shows that there's a direct line from Christianity to modern values like freedom, kindness, progress, and equality. And so if you haven't seen the book, I highly recommend it. It's very well written. 
But Christianity birthed universities, hospitals for the public. The list goes on. Modern science was birthed among people who were trying to think God's thoughts after him. There's a, there's a Christian influence and inspiration for modern science. It was behind the abolishment of the slave trade. William Wilberforce was driven by his Christian faith to get rid of the evil of slavery in the British Empire. And the list goes on and on. Practicing our faith is good for the world. It's good for society. So let's remember God's grace. Let's respond to his invitation. And let's realize our calling for God's glory, for our joy, and for the good of the world. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for your love that you first loved us. You came to us in the person of your son, Jesus, to walk among us, to show us the full extent of your love, especially when you died on the cross for our sins, that we could be forgiven and reconciled to you. I pray that you would allow this message to go deep into our hearts, wherever we're at on our journey with you. Lord, would you awaken our faith? Would you deepen our faith? Would you touch us by your Holy Spirit? Would you draw us close? Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? And would you send us out of here a little bit more equipped to be those people that you have called us to be? We thank you that it's all by grace, and we receive that in Jesus' name. Amen.